Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Als from Strata Central. How are you doing, Rena? Hi, Amanda. How are you going? Wonderfully. Wonderfully this week. Wonderfully. (laughs) (laughs) And especially so because I actually got to see you in person this week. We were in the same room at the same time. It was very exciting. Yeah, it was actually quite a unique experience now, sort of (laughs) pre-post-COVID. Yeah, exactly. To uh, be with each other in person. But even more interesting, I thought we were actually on opposing sides in a mediation. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, it was actually obviously an interesting mediation in terms of the subject that we were mediating about, but also the fact that, um, yeah, I had to speak to you in that capacity. So, yeah, it was very interesting. (laughs) Well, we were, uh, I thought you were very professional, of course, representing the Owners Corporation and I was representing a lot owner and that's just how it goes sometimes. We are all in this rather small pond, I find, uh, together and we do cross paths with our friends and colleagues, uh, particularly happens when you're lawyers on opposing sides of a bar table. But, no, we got through it. Yeah, and it was actually, I mean, overall it was quite very, very civil. There was no voices raised or anything like that. It was actually quite one of the, probably the most sombre mediations I've had for a long time, I would say. <laughs> boring, <laughs> you can though. say that about mediation. <laughs> not, not boring, though. We can no, not boring, but not, not inflammatory in terms of voices being raised and fists being smashed on tables and things like that. <laughs> No. Well, I hope that doesn't happen too often, but uh, mm. living in this crazy world that, that Strata is, people do get emotional. Exactly. And, um, our listeners, I'm sure, have had their own experiences of times of high emotion. But that is what we try to do here on the podcast to arm you with some knowledge, some information, resources to help you get through those emotional times, perhaps with more precision and uh, insight and foresight than emotion to solve problems for you. So let's get into it. You're here with me this week to share your challenge and your win. Let's kick off with your challenge this week, Rena. Yeah, so my challenge this week, Amanda, comes from bylaws. So a lot of owners obviously doing renovations. I haven't seen that slowing down in COVID, I must say. I think I'm not sure if it's the government $25,000 grant for people that are doing renovations if they're equaling $150,000. But we've had some vitals that have been put through by owners and, you know, the usual restrictions apply in terms of identification and, you know, usual wording, sorry, not restrictions, wording. And for the first time, actually, I was asked a question that in a sense, I couldn't really answer apart from the part that related to the bylaw wording. So most bylaws will include reference to an owner providing a copy of an order or consent or approval from a statutory authority Mm -hmm. for the renovation if required. Now, Australia Committee and even Australia Managing Agent, we're not really qualified to know what those consents should be unless, you know, they're very obvious, like if you're doing a major work and people can see it from the outside and a DA is required and and normally the person would have submitted a DA like documentation for us to execute but one of the questions I was asked was you know in an apartment that's being currently proposed to be renovated the owner wants to install a washing machine 
in the kitchen. You know those ones mm-hmm. that you put under, under and you can cover, etc. Yes, I believe they call it a European laundry. Correct. <laughs> Very sophisticated. Anyway, and the question was, um, does the National Construction Code allow for that to occur? And if so, like what waterproofing does someone have uh, to install in a kitchen? Right. Now, when I got the bylaw and I'm thinking, well, I don't really know. Like, so I'll have to now ask the owner. But, I mean, the problem is, Amanda, if an owner is not using an architect and they're just sort of like, you know, doing this to, well, not cosmetic, but, you know, like new kitchen, new bathroom, a few walls here and there, nothing of major consequence in terms of like changes per se, then how, how does a strata committee and a managing agent navigate that questions when you think to yourself, well, hang on, like, what if I don't get the consents? What, what if they can't do what they want to do and they haven't got an architect who's advising? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so what's your recommendation on that, Amanda? Yeah, it's a good question. It comes back to you don't know what you don't know. Mm. And I had a, a similar example in a building I was working with where a a new owner was doing a renovation. They were doing what you might call the usual, the new kitchen, the new bathroom, mm. and they they were wanting to alter their laundry to include a shower and a toilet, so to turn it into a second bathroom, if you like. And it was only that the resident who was below said, look, I don't actually think you can do that in our building because of the way the plumbing works and the sewerage and we've never had toilets in this particular place, that the strata committee was prompted then to go and speak to their own plumber and to say, oh, we've got a resident who wants to do this. This is how they're proposing to do it. Can you have a look and see if it's possible? Mm. And then the owners corporation's own plumber said, well, no, it's not actually possible to put a toilet in this location for these reasons. So if the committee hadn't been alert to that issue because the resident below hadn't raised it and this bylaw came through and said, yep, we're going to put a shower and a toilet in, we're going to do waterproofing, we're going to do everything according to Australian standard, go ahead only to realise down the track that there was then a problem with the plumbing, well, that's that could be disastrous and that is what happens in buildings. It's yeah. only those buildings that with the highly engaged owners or committees perhaps who understand, who know, first of all, that the work is going to go ahead, number one, there is a bylaw and there is some communication from the lot owner that they're going to be doing this work and then can consider it with some level of experience if they've been through this process before. But if they haven't, you're right, they're often stabbing in the dark and relying on the fact that this lot owner has said in the terms of their bylaw that they are going to do all work according to the National Construction Code, according to the Australian standards. And then the question I would think in your example, Rena, is we know that there is a standard for waterproofing. Mm. Is a laundry a uh, wet area that falls within that requirement for waterproofing? And my, and my understanding is that it is, just my own experience with mm. renovations and, and bathrooms in strata schemes, laundries in strata schemes, that they are waterproofed. And then I would have thought, but again, said with no technical knowledge or reference to any particular standard, that if you're putting a laundry then in a kitchen, then yes, it would need to be waterproof because it, it is a laundry. And but Amanda, but then again, how do we, like, and again, to ask the right questions. And, and then someone was saying there are other things like if you take out all, technically that requires a CDC. People often, well, I've never known people that have taken out non-load bearing walls or load bearing walls apart from having a bylaw to allow beams, et cetera, to be installed with their load bearing. So, again, I think it's a very complicated area, I think, for strata committees and strata managers in terms of being presented with proposed works to understand whether or not do those consents need to come from council? Mm. Because sometimes people do things without getting consent from council and they do need some form of council consent, even though... 
they may not realize that they have to, and we don't even know that they have to. Well, I can tell you what I always put in my bylaws that I draft for owners corporations and just by default they end up in bylaws I draft for lot owners as well is a clause in there that says that the lot owner must provide any other documentation, do any other thing, comply with any other reasonable condition or reasonable request that the strata committee may make. And my advice to strata committees would be if you are not sure if because no one's ever done this in your building before, it's the kind of renovation you haven't seen before, then you are entitled to ask the lot owner to inform you, to tell you, yes, council approval is required or no, it's not. And this is why not. Here, here I am pointing to the exempt development provisions in the planning instrument that say that I don't need a development consent and it can be done with a CDC or no council approval is required whatsoever. I think it has to always come back to yes. the lot owner who wants to do the work, who is there asking for the approval to prove to you, strata committee, that they've got all their ducks in a row and you should have in your document of approval, which is your bylaw, a term in there which allows you, the strata committee, to ask the lot owner to provide you with that yeah. confirmation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that terminology and provision is included in the bylaw manner that, that has been presented. So I think for us now as managing agents and strata, we need to be more, I think, on the front foot of mm. asking for that documentation and not assume that the owner will provide it to us. Yep. Of course, we always get the insurances and licenses of their contractors and all those other tick box little items. But this, I think, has not really come across my sort of radar until now when there was something that was a bit out of the box like you were referring to Amanda where you're having to add a toilet in a laundry mm, this yep. is like a washing machine in a kitchen I'm thinking and they're going well hang on and I thought yeah, yeah you're right and it's really up to them and we have to make sure that they provide us like in any any sort of out of the ordinary or even if it's within the ordinary we need to make sure that all those consents whether they're needed or not, are provided to us so that the owners understand. So if anything happens in the future that the owners corporation is covered, otherwise if we don't ask for the right stuff, then I suppose in a sense we're going to be complicit in any future issues that may arise. Yeah, it does complicate things. Of course, when the uh, the washing machine ultimately, when the, the hose bursts and yes. there's water leak and there's a leak down to the kitchen below and there's been no waterproofing, um, when you go back to the terms of the bylaw, you can see that the lot owner was supposed to install that laundry in accordance with all standards. You find out that the standard was that there should be waterproofing regardless of the location of the washer dryer. There should be waterproofing. Hasn't happened. But it is so much harder to fix things after the event, of course. Exactly. And you've got the owner below who is suffering from a flood. You're having to then deal with an owner who says, hey, but you approved all of this. Exactly, you, man. You it's exactly known. right. Yeah, mm. I can see that. Yeah. So, yes, front foot, I think. That's the lesson for our managers and our committee members listening in. Don't forget yes. you, you are and you should ensure that you are entitled to ask for the mm. lot owner to prove their compliance with all relevant planning requirements. If you're not sure, just ask. Yeah. You don't know unless you ask. Exactly. And like you said, Amanda, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. Always uh, assume that they're, uh, that you're missing something. I often exactly. say that. Often to my colleagues when we're in a difficult situation, I say, uh, well, this is what I think it is, but what am I missing? Yeah, Fill exactly. in the gaps for me. Yes. yes. I like that. Thank you. Okay. Well, changing gears a little bit, I'm going to talk about parking. This is a question from one of our podcast listeners, Susie, sent me in this question and she has said that in her building they no longer allow residents to park in their visitor parking spots. Uh, that sounds like a good decision. However, 
And I assume, Susie, that is because you have a bylaw in place that says visitor parking is just for visitors. Uh, However, from time to time, Susie does have particular residents who are parking in the visitor parking spots. They ask the strata manager to send out a letter reminding all the residents you're not supposed to park in the visitor parking. Usually it stops, but that's a pain in the backside. We don't want to have to keep doing that. So Susie's asking us, Rena, what actions can we take to deal with this and Susie's also asking, interestingly, when does a visitor become a resident? So, for example, some visitors will stay for long weekends, a Friday through to a Monday, and they will park in the spot for the entire time. Are they still a visitor? Are they entitled to park there? Do we have any suggestions or some guidelines around this? Now, of course, parking in our strata buildings, a perennial problem across the nation. It is one of the big P's along with pets and parties. Buildings are dealing with this in all different kinds of ways, Susie. Uh, I can say from my experience, and then I'll hand over to you, Rena. bylaws definitely are the first place I would say to be regulating your parking, to make sure that your owners and your residents are aware of what the rules are when it comes to parking. And particularly when it comes to visitor parking, some buildings do say the visitor parking is for a maximum eight hours in any 24-hour period. I've seen that as well. You can decide what best suits your building when it comes to restrictions on visitor parking. Some buildings like to say that residents can use the visitor parking for drop-off and pick-up five minutes at a time. That's not generally something I recommend because it can get a little bit messy because how are you going to enforce that or know that a resident has only been there for five minutes or has been there for five hours? That becomes (laughs) a little bit sticky. What I prefer to do is simply say, look, we know who the residents are who are only using these spaces to drop the kids off or to pick up or to drop off the shopping. And we're, of course, not going to enforce the bylaws against those people. That's not what it's there for. But definitely having very clear bylaws about what your rules are around the visitor parking spots is a good idea. And then secondly, when it comes to enforcement, do you have, number one, do you have CCTV? That is always the cure-all, I find, when it comes to monitoring what's going on on the common property and being able to then identify and communicate with repeat offenders? Or do you have a committee member or two who are able to keep an eye on the area, people who may be at home more often than not, and are willing to pop out and put a note on the windscreen? I know in our building, we have some template notes and we've printed them up on very bright fluorescent A4 paper. And they get placed on cars when we know that those people are not residents, are not visitors. We live in a very busy urban area across the road from a park. So there's often uh, people trying to uh, quickly nip in and, and grab a spot while they head over to their kids' sport. So we do have a note that we put on the windscreen and we do find that we don't see those people come back once they realize, oops, yes, someone is watching and I'm not supposed to be parking here. Rena, what are your thoughts on this problem? Yeah, so I like the idea, Amanda, you suggested about the CCTV cameras, um, but I think I would caution in relation to that only so far as make sure that the camera then follows the person into the apartment or it, mm. there's coverage further along because what we found in some of our buildings where we have cameras, but then we don't have a camera near the lift, so therefore we don't know where that person went to. So especially if, yeah. if obviously if they're a visitor, we need to make sure that if you do have cameras, and that's a great, that's probably the best um, thing to do in terms of noting who's actually um, abusing it, is to have cameras that will then trail the person, you know, to their final destination being their apartment. Yeah. In terms of um, taking action, I think that if you are, have the serial offenders that you've mentioned, 
they probably need to get the normal three letters and then I think perhaps, you know, go to have a notice to comply or even go to mediation. I think people need to know that, you know, like you can't just keep writing letters and then they stop and then you write another letter and they stop and it just becomes so arduous, I think, for those, for the managers and for the community members who are trying to establish some fairness across visitor parking, which we said, Amanda, earlier, you've said is one of the the three Ps that we all... um, complain about and and unfortunately I think in newer buildings there's less visitor parking than there used to be Mm. in the older buildings and people now have more cars so it's in a sense the converse of what you would expect you know you've got more cars less spaces so hopefully I think having a consistent approach but I think addressing those people in particular like you've we've said have cameras I think cameras are the best thing for a building even a small building I mean I live in a block of six apartments and we have cameras and mm. it's funny, the reason we had them wasn't because of parking, but it was because of an incident we had with a, a former tenant um, who was actually known to the police. But at least then it sort of gave it, but we now use it for other things because it now is like a deterrent in terms of behaviour modification. So yep. I think it's a sort of a good tool to, to use. Yeah. So have a think about that, Susie. Have a close look at the terms of your bylaw that deals with parking and make sure that it is comprehensive, a reminder to residents of what those terms are and a reminder perhaps of uh, what the options are available to the owners corporation if there's a breach of the bylaws, including a notice to comply if you're in New South Wales, that can turn into a penalty order from the tribunal, sometimes just reminding residents that that is the path that they could be on, particularly if they are repeat offenders, is a good idea. Notes on the windscreen are also a good idea I find and uh, CCTV number one I say it again and again and when I have a client building that has CCTV in place then uh, they fast become my favorite makes my job a little bit yeah exactly all right heading over to your win for this week Rena yeah this is an interesting one Amanda because we decided to resign from a building because unfortunately you know the strata committee didn't want to they'd raise enough funds to do some work on balconies and then they were, they didn't want to start doing it. They got another report that said sort of what they wanted to hear, that nothing had to be done. Right. People are complaining to us and we're just sort of finding like we're the meat in the sandwich. You know, we can't help them. The money's there. The community doesn't want to spend it and that was it. So we ended up resigning, which was all fine. And then in the meantime, uh, the treasurer asked for the strata roll, which I thought was a bit strange. But anyway, so we gave him the strata roll and a managing agent proceeded to hold general meeting to appoint themselves, which is fine. Sorry, it's not fine, but I mean, you know, obviously they needed a new agent, so there was no issue with that. But the agent proceeded to hold a general meeting and do it electronically, even though this is pre-5th of June when where you could do that, mm-hmm. on his letterhead, and the, the building didn't even have electronic voting allowed. And so I'm thinking, like, this, I think this is more probably not a win as such, I would say, but more I think a, a bit of a warning to strata managers. Now, at the end of the day, you know, like we had resigned, there's no issue, but really their appointment, they had no right to actually even hold the meeting. We were still managing the strata scheme. We would have happily given the strata role to the secretary, but for a strata manager to actually put on their letterhead and then to use electronic voting, mm-hmm. which wasn't even allowed at the time, they did that. I just thought, um, I suppose in a sense, it's a reflection, I think, of um, the strata committee and, and who they've now since engaged. But um yeah, I think it's a bit of a caution to strata managers. I think just just be careful when someone asks you to take over another building and you you actually aren't yet appointed to do anything mm. until the expiry of our appointment, which I think was about another couple of weeks or so. But, um, yeah, I mean, it yeah. was a win for us that we got rid of this building that wasn't um, basically <laughs> doing any um, work that they needed to for the owner's balconies that were leaking. Um, but I think um, I'm adding a bit of a sort of extra little tinge there in terms mm. of, 
agents, be careful, like, you know, because really their appointment is really actually invalid. So if one day someone wants to then cause a problem for them, it won't be very hard at all, to be honest. Yeah, there's a few uh, issues there, isn't there? There would certainly be nothing stopping the secretary from convening the meeting as they're entitled to do on the, under the Act. It doesn't yeah. have to be the agent who does it with their delegated authority. Right. Um, I too am very uncomfortable hearing that a strata managing agent not yet appointed has issued that notice on their own letterhead. I find mm. that a little bit unusual. And indeed, I am sure when a building perhaps is parting ways from its current manager or the agreement has expired and they are looking to appoint a new manager, that new manager, I'm sure, is in the background helping, uh, mm. perhaps free of charge, helping the secretary to put together the notice of meeting, to convene the meeting, making sure that they do so um, validly in accordance with all the relevant legislation. But I, I think it is a step too far than to be placing that notice on your own letterhead with no authority. And as you say, convening it electronically without the legal uh, resolution that was Mm. required before our new COVID laws commenced in New South Wales. Yeah, and Mm. the thing is, Amanda, also like our term was coming to an end and we just decided that this was actually good timing for us because we just weren't getting anywhere in terms of getting the work done. But I think that so it wasn't as if like, you know, it was not amicable or, you know, like in a sense, you know, we were quite comfortable. So as you said, there's always another agent in the background helping someone, as you've said, but when there's no need for that discretion, you can Mm. be more transparent and, and, you know, but like, yeah, I think, but I'm not sure if managers understand they can't do certain things until they're Mm. the actual agent. They have no legal authority. So yeah, yeah, the secretary definitely. An experienced managing agent or somebody maybe? I don't know. Like I've never heard of the company. There are so many companies out there. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're new on the block and uh, hopefully anyone else new on the block will be learning (laughs) from this experience. So, yeah, it does sound like a a win from your perspective. Definitely a win. Definitely. Uh, And a good good one to share for others too to avoid that, ending up in that predicament. Hmm. All right. Well, we are going to finish up with my win for this week. And I want to share with everybody the new report that came out within the last couple of weeks that will be when this goes to air. It is the Australasian Strata Insights Report of 2020, published by City Futures Research Centre, which operates out of the University of of New South Wales. Uh, This report came out towards the end of June and it sets out for us comprehensive national data on the strata sector in Australia. And this is a report I believe was first published in 2018. So this 2020 version is an update and City Futures partners together with Strata Community Association to put this together. I will put a link to it in the show notes so you can go and check it out. It has some wonderful infographics. It's super easy to read, but it goes through on a national level and then digs into each state some really interesting strata data. It tells us the percentage of people who live in strata, both nationally and in each state, tells us uh, the language that apartment residents are speaking, tells us how many people are employed in the strata sector. One number that I will call out is the total insured value of strata schemes. This is estimated at one trillion, one hundred and seventeen billion. 350 million, 632 
$1,387,000. I just said that twice. Dollars. Jesus. <laughs> that wow. is a lot. And if you, if you write that down, I posted it on Facebook recently. If you write that down, there's a lot of commas in there. Uh, yeah, how, many no- how many numbers are there all together, Amanda? Is three, it like- six, nine, 12, 13. Wow. So did I say that right? <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, so that's a heck of a lot of money in this sector. Really fascinating. Go, as I said, go and check it out. Rena, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to glance over it, but you might no, be familiar I haven't with actually, the, the 2018 report. And just, you know, hats off to the researchers involved in this. It includes Hazel East Hope, Sean Thompson, Alastair Sisson, and I do know that Dr. Nicole Johnston, Sasha Reed, and Lawrence Troy were also involved in the project in their uh, capacity as academics servicing our strata sector. So check it out. Some really interesting numbers in there. Mm, sounds amazing, Amanda. I think um, I think managers should all have a look at that too. I think in terms of just getting some stats outside your own little bubble, I think is mm. really important. Yeah. One interesting stat in there that jumped out to me was that the top three most common professionals servicing our strata schemes are lawyers, engineers, and valuers, Mm. keeping us all busy. Wow. That's funny because today I was um, at an exercise session with my trainer this morning and um, lady that sort of asked me, oh, what do you do for work? And, and I said, oh, I'm, a, I'm in Australia. She said, oh, no, I can't believe it. She said, why? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. This is really interesting to me. The uh, – reputation, I suppose, that strata managers have, and I put it down to a misunderstanding really of what strata managers do and who they are and the the importance of the work that they do. God, you'd think you were a used car salesman by the response. What she said, Amanda, was that managers are either good or bad. In her experience as a lawyer, and she was dealing in the strata sector previously, Mm -hmm. she said either strata managers are either very good or they're very bad. So she had sort of like the good ones were really good. Mm. The bad ones are really oh, bad. Maybe so like, like anyway, she didn't have much of an in-between um, experience, unfortunately, but yeah. Well, there's a bit of PR there, I think, to be done mm. on behalf of strata managers. I'd like to think that we're doing our fair share of that, Rena, mm. uh, via our various platforms. There are certainly some fabulous managers out there, managers oh, definitely. that I work with that you know uh, that we have on the show here and uh, that we turn to for guidance and and advice in this sector and that we refer buildings to when they're looking for good managers, definitely. Exactly, definitely. So, yes, perhaps let your trainer know next time you see her. Um, oh, no, it wasn't her. It was a lawyer that I was in. Like, there were I two, was in the group, right? In the group. Oh, yeah, it wasn't the trainer. It was a she lawyer, was, it wasn't a lawyer turned personal trainer. No, 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 it was a lawyer turned <laughs> personal trainer. Hey, hey that's um, understandable, that would be. Exactly. <laughs> well, maybe a strata manager turned personal trainer is more understandable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. all right okay yes we're we're off down a rabbit hole here let's come back thank you very much Rena for our chat today and indeed as Susie did if you have questions that you'd like Rena and I to cover to work through for you on the podcast feel free to pop them under this episode on the website there is space there for your comments yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash podcast you will see there our last four years worth of podcasts lots Mm. and lots of strata information there for you so let us know what else you need to know we don't know what you don't know how's that exactly (laughs) (laughs) i will see you again soon rena see you next time man bye bye 
Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?